0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your
1: host, Mike Adams.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Wow, wrapping up another week. Thank you for being with us. Here's what we'll be talking about on the program today. Big event held yesterday, a big town hall meeting yesterday in Wisconsin, looking at the impact of uh, trade tensions and tariffs. We'll be talking with Brian Keel, Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade, a little bit later on about that event that was held yesterday in Wisconsin. Also today, a look at African swine fever. Um, That situation in China having uh, an impact certainly on Chinese pork production. Does that mean they'll be buying more from maybe the U.S.? Also, what about the risk of that spreading to the U.S.? We'll be talking about that with the lead animal protein economist for CoBank a little bit later on. And then also today, we'll continue our series on looking ahead, planning for next year's growing season. That's coming up in a bit. But first, we start things off with Todd Neely with DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, good to be here.
2: Hey, a lot of... Um, Focus still on E15 and the renewable fuels industry, and I think rightfully so. Very concerned that EPA is going to kind of slow walk this thing to the point where it may not be ready to go next summer. What are you hearing?
4: Well, yeah, Mike. It's interesting because you know when, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when the announcement came out, um, you know it was very celebratory in, in Agland here, and I think uh, you know somewhere lost in that entire excitement was the actual timetable that EPA has laid out. Um, you're looking at a February release for the proposal, and then you're talking about, um, you know, if that's getting done by June for the driving season, we're talking about maybe a 60-day public comment. And then, um, you know, as we've seen with so many things related to the RFS, uh, it's going to draw many thousands of comments, public comments, uh, criticisms, all those things that the agency looks for. Um, Then you're looking at, if we have a 60-day public comment period, we're looking at maybe five to six weeks, Tops, um for EPA to, to go through those comments and finalize the rule. Um, so when you look at that timeline, it is very tight. Uh, yesterday, Jeff Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association said in a press conference that um, he's trying to urge the, the, uh, the agency to move along on this, uh, maybe step it up, expedite the process a little bit, um, you know, even if it was bumped up to January. Uh, it would give the possibility of, of getting this ready by June because right now that is a very tight timeline.
2: yeah that's if everything went just right and we know things usually don't go that smoothly that'll bring up the question I guess we don't know but speculation mm-hmm. is was it planned this way?
4: Um, you know I, I think I think when you look at this it's, it's more likely um, you know that politics, obviously played a role in this, you know, we're, we're heading into the, the midterm election. Um, you know, Trump is out on the stump nationwide. Um, you know, it, it, it's really difficult to say at this point, but it, it appears that, you know, this was a very timely release, obviously for the president and, and, uh, you know, his appeal to rural voters. And I think, um, you know, maybe that was more the driving force behind it than really looking at the you know, the actual timetable aspects of it. It was more of getting the, you know, getting the announcement out there and getting the effect of it. Um, And then I think once EPA released its fall uh, unified agenda that they put out and you see it uh, up there for February release, it really did kind of head home, I think, to everybody at that point, that, wait a minute, that's not very long off. Now, I don't think it means that EPA doesn't intend to finalize the rule because I I really believe that's happening, but... um, you know, at this point, it does feel uh, more on the optimistic side that it's going to happen by June. But we'll wait and see.
2: We're talking with Todd Neely with DTN. Meanwhile, Todd, the, the opponents, the critics of ethanol, they're trying to get a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, the, the RFA held, a, as you mentioned, that uh, teleconference yesterday, mm-hmm. trying to get the facts out there and clearing up some of these, these uh, uh, wrong messages uh, that have been sent out.
4: Yeah, you know, and I think one of the more striking aspects of all of this, um, you know, you're right, you hear from the opponents about, you know, potential engine damage, um, you know, retail gas stations not having the equipment, um, you know, all these things that we hear about. Um, but when you look at the brass tacks of E15 compared to E10, uh, what we're talking about is a summer driving season where it's been basically restricted because of uh, what they call the reed vapor pressure. Um, and so, basically, when you look at E15 and E10, there was a scientist on a call yesterday that said that there really is no scientific scientific evidence that shows there's any difference between the two blends in terms of uh, reed vapor pressure. Um, and really, the ethanol industry has said this for years, that uh, you know, getting E15 to the market is really just a formality, because when you compare the two fuels, uh, you know, there are more environmental and clean air aspects of e 15 uh, that's more beneficial than even E10. But when you compare the two fuels and you're talking about the waiver situation, um, it's really hard to see a difference. And so it's really been more of a red tape thing. It's been more of a, um, you know, pol- perhaps political pressure on EPA to keep E15 out of year round sales. And so, um, yeah, I mean, all along, I think for years, you know, people have said E15 is really no different from E10. Uh, although you would talk to farmers. And they would say, yeah, it's more of a corn demand for us. And so, um, yeah, we'll see how this plays out. But I do think that um, I do think this is going to get done.
2: Two big issues that I mean, two misconceptions that the opponents like to spread. One that it'll hurt your cars. And again, uh, we mm-hmm. we emphasize what the vast vast majority of vehicles uh, can run E15, no problems. Uh, EPA approved it right. for 2001 year models and newer. So uh, that that should not be an issue, although some are trying to scare people with that.
4: Yeah, you know, and, and Mike, over the years, you know, I've covered, I've covered ethanol clear back to 2005, um, and I think one of the things that's always been out there um, is, is the safety aspect of ethanol. You know, we've always, we always hear that, that it damages engines. Uh, but I've heard, I've heard so many anecdotes from, from various people who said that they've used high ethanol blends in, in cars that are even older than 2001 for years. Um, and never had any problem. Now I'm not sitting here and condoning that, but um, you know there really hasn't been any reports of, of damage to a vehicle using E15, and so that's that's kind of one of the aspects that the industry continues to hammer home that um, you know show us the evidence that it's actually harming vehicles. Um, you know, on the other side, I, I think the petroleum people at this point uh, they are looking fairly desperate. I mean, we're seeing uh, you know a campaign right here in the Midwest from many of the people in DC. Uh, trying to convince people in Nebraska and, and other places that E-15 is going to be bad. And so uh, that, to me, seems like desperation.
2: Yeah, and the other part of this is it's being portrayed by the critics and opponents as E-15 allowed in the summer as some kind of a mandate. And again, uh, Todd, we keep reminding right. folks this is not a mandate, just just would allow the choice, the option of having it in the summertime.
4: That's absolutely right. You know, I see that repeated, um, you know, on mainstream media types uh, when they talk about this issue. Uh, it's always referred to as a mandate. Um, I think that even when you hear from the petroleum interests, they say the same thing. Um, and really, it isn't. I mean, we're, we've talked about this for years. How ethanol wants more, you no know, more, um, more market and, and more opportunities. And uh, it's really been about that. It's just providing service stations, consumers, everybody, uh, you know, more choices at the pump, honestly. Um, And I I think that's honestly where the ethanol industry is going to win the argument, is at the end of the day, no one has to sell E15 or buy E15. Right.
2: Todd, as always, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot.
4: Yeah, thank you, Mike.
2: Take care. All right, coming up next, the impact of uh, trade wars and tariffs How that affects all of us, we'll talk about that next on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
5: Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency, so you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit FSPropane.com for more information.
6: Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture the Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network.
7: It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, We've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org.
0: information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
2: What impact are tariffs and these trade issues having on uh, agriculture as well as the rest of the economy? That was a focus yesterday in Wisconsin at a town hall meeting. Joining us now is Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade, Brian Keel. Brian, thanks for joining us again. Tell us about your event yesterday in Wisconsin. uh, The purpose of it, and uh, kind of give us an overview of uh, what you had, uh, who you had there speaking, and what your message was.
3: Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, this was uh, this was a a pretty amazing town hall event. This was the seventh town hall event we've held uh, in recent months. So we've been in uh, Chicago, we've been in Nashville, uh, we've been in Dallas. philadelphia and just all over the place and each of these town hall events what we've been doing these are the tariffs hurt the heartland events and so that's a coordinated campaign between farmers for free trade and a large group called americans for free trade americans for free trade is kind of an umbrella that includes the american petroleum institute the national fertilizer institute the national retail federation uh, restaurant associations so it's sort of everyone who's not an ag producer who's affected Um, And we're really pleased to be working with that group because it's sort of bringing all these voices together to talk about the impacts of the tariffs. So these town hall events typically have, they'll have agricultural producers, but then they'll also have manufacturers or retailers, others. At our Milwaukee event yesterday, we had a representative from the Restaurant Association in Milwaukee. We had a local uh, brewer, Good City Brewing out of uh, Milwaukee, was there talking about how aluminum prices are hurting their business. The event itself was hosted at Husco, which is a, a manufacturer. Uh, they talked about how much their prices has gone up. Uh, we had the, the president of the Wisconsin Farm Bureau there. So just a good discussion about the impact of the tra- trade war on farmers, manufacturers, uh, families, consumers. Um, and I think the takeaway, bottom line, is everyone, everyone's getting squeezed.
2: Yeah, I mean, we look at it through the lens of agriculture, but uh, events like this point out it impacts all of us.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, it was interesting. We had uh, one of the the folks from the uh, Association of Equipment Manufacturers, they were a co-host on that event, and they said, look, when farmers get hurt, equipment manufacturers get hurt because, you know, the equipment manufacturers want to sell the tractors and the combines. Fewer of those are being sold because farmers are getting pinched and because tractors and combines are more expensive because of the trade war. So the the ripple effects really are are rippling out from agriculture, and that's part of the story we're trying to tell at these events.
2: Well, I know the president continues to say and and evidently believes that tariffs are an effective tool to getting uh, uh, good trade deals, but... uh, the the harm that's being done in the meantime. I mean, he talks about short-term pain for long-term gain, but uh, the short-term pain is starting to last a while.
3: (laughs) It it is, and I think there's there's a couple pieces to that conversation. I mean, number one, are tariffs necessary to get good trade deals? I'd say absolutely they are not. Um, You know, we've gotten good trade deals in the past. U.S. agriculture, heck, 20% of our income, our farm revenue, comes from exports. So We've gotten great trade deals in the past without slapping tariffs on everyone. Uh, second, you got to look at the long-term impacts of what we're doing. I mean, this is not short-term pain anymore. This is long-term pain. We're we're displacing, we're displacing, um, we're displacing our market share by stepping out of the game. So Brazil is ramping up soybean production, and uh, and you know Australia is only too happy to sell beef into China we're standing on the sidelines uh, and, and we're not going to just get those markets back when this trade war
2: resolves. Meanwhile, Secretary Purdue again saying that USDA will be announcing a second round of payments to uh, tariff hit uh, farmers under the market facilitation program. Now he didn't say when an announcement would be made uh, but uh, he has said officials have previously said it could happen in December. Um, the Secretary is saying he wants to put to rest any concerns that a second round of trade aid payments may not be made Uh, again this gets back to would rather have trade than aid and um, but it looks like they're planning on this going a while yet so that's why they're looking at that second round
3: yeah and and i think you've just heard just in the last couple days concern from you know the milk industry saying look they've by their calculation dairy has Taken a one billion dollar hit, billion with a B, because of this trade war, and yet their payments under that program have been about 137 million. So you're, you're not making up the pain with these payment programs. Um, that's point number one. And, and again, if we're doing long-term damage to markets, w- what happens when these payment program ends? When when these payment programs end, uh, you know, farmers, they're not going to be able to sell as much product as they had before, and but they're not going to be getting payments either. So. These are band-aids that that you know they're better than nothing, but boy, we'd rather just not have the trade war.
2: Talking with Brian Keel, executive director of Farmers for Free Trade, and back to your point about uh, these things just don't automatically go away overnight. I think that's that's the concern here, uh, and because I think some people think, oh well, whenever we announce that deal, then everything's going to be good uh, starting from that point on, back to normal or even better, and it just doesn't uh, turn around that quickly, does it?
3: Yeah, I mean, anyone who's been around at all in agriculture for a while would remember, you know, Carter's grain embargo uh, in, the, in the late '70s, early '80s. You know, before Reagan came into office, but that grain embargo, when it ended, when Reagan ended the grain embargo against Russia, we had lost market share. We had elevators that had closed. We had uh, farmers that weren't uh, that weren't able to sell their their uh, grain into into those markets for for decades. So, these are not things that just turn around quickly, and I I think that's a big part of our concern. Um, The other thing to note is, you know, there are some in the administration who this is not about leverage and negotiation. This is fundamentally about protectionism. There are some, like Peter Navarro in the the administration, who believe that tariffs are a long-term strategy for the United States. Uh, That's just the opposite of free trade, and it means that this trade war is going to go on, you know, well into 2019, potentially 2020. So I think we're very nervous about what this means for U.S. ag.
2: Now, there's no doubt that if they announced the trade deal tomorrow or whenever they announce it with China, uh, the markets would react favorably, I'm sure, right away. But that doesn't change the fact that there's still some long-term changes. That are taking place, as you said, with our competitors and others, that will have to be addressed moving forward. Brian, do you have more of these uh, town hall events scheduled?
3: Uh, we do. We have quite a number in the hopper. Uh, we're going to we're going to take off uh, next week because we're coming right up on the election and didn't want to do one right before the election. We're we're a nonpartisan, nonpolitical organization. And then after the election, we'll pick back up and we'll be doing events uh, through through New Year's and into January. We've got a whole schedule. We'll be in South Carolina. We'll be in Georgia. We'll be in Texas again. Uh, so we've we've got a we've got a big a big schedule coming ahead of us. Uh, people can find out about these events at tariffshurt.com or at farmersforfreetrade.com.
2: Yeah, and I want to emphasize again. We've talked about this before. Your group is not. This is not an anti-Trump, not an anti-administration uh, uh, group. You're just promoting uh, the importance of trade and the need to get trade deals done.
3: That's right. And and you know where where President Trump and his administration get get it right, we'll be the first to say so. So U.S. Mexico Canada Agreement. We don't think the tariffs were needed to get that agreement. You know, a lot of it was, was taken from the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. But at the end of the day, it's a better agreement than NAFTA was. We support it. We're going to be putting resources behind trying to get Congress to approve it. So where President Trump and his administration right, we're right there with it. Fundamentally, you know, our interest is in helping protect U.S. agriculture. Uh, that, that's where we start.
2: And... To further the point about this is more than just an agricultural issue. Uh, All we have to do is look at the stock market. And while the tariffs and the situation with China not solely uh, to, uh, you know, the reason for the stock market going down the way it has in recent days, but it's a part of it.
3: Well, yeah, and there's there's some really interesting articles that have just come out in the last 24 hours. You know, the most recent Fed reports where the federal banks uh, interview uh, manufacturers around the U.S. and other businesses. A lot of data points coming in of businesses being squeezed by tariffs, and that we're starting to see that as a drag on the economy. Same thing with earnings calls, you know, in publicly traded companies. A high percentage of those companies, like well over 50 percent, the earnings calls have talked about how the tariffs are uh, creating downward pressure on earnings. And you're seeing that with Caterpillar losing money. Uh, You're seeing it across the board with with businesses that are being hurt by these tariffs.
2: Yeah, it is a ripple effect, and it seems like the longer it goes, the bigger those ripples get. Well, Brian, thanks a lot, and we'll be watching uh, these events, uh, your town halls, as they take place across the country. Again, where can folks get more information about them?
3: Uh, They can go to uh, FarmersForFreeTrade.com and also to TariffsHurt.com. And, Mike, thanks for all you're doing. Always great to talk with you.
2: All right, you too, Brian. Take care. Brian Keel, Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade. All right, coming up next, we're going to take a look at African Swine Fever. Uh, that's uh, going on in China it's uh, you know that country's been hit hard with this uh, with this disease in 10 provinces it hurts them but does that open up an opportunity for U.S. to sell more pork into China even with our trade differences and what about the risk of that disease coming to the United States take a look at that coming up next as we'll talk with a lead animal protein economist for Cobank next on Adams on Agriculture
3: We all want more time with our dads, brothers, partners, friends, and our sons. Time for more conversations, more catch-ups, more of what life's all about. Now is our time to make it happen. Together, we can stop men dying too young by tackling the big issues. Prostate cancer, testicular cancer, mental health, suicide. It's time to act. Sign up at Movember.com and raise funds to help change the face of men's health.
7: It's
6: time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Hoverson from the American Ag Network. Grain contracts are rising after yesterday's drop due to disappointing weekly export sales in corn and soybeans. Analysts saying the volatility in prices will likely continue over the next several days. With a tense political environment in the weekend in front of us, Volatility to be expected, according to The Wire Talk. Traders also watching weather as the harvest continues to advance. Private exporters reporting to USDA sales of 260,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to unknown destinations. U.S. soybean shipments are down 35% in 2018-19 from a year ago as China largely stays away on the futures board an hour into trade five to six and a fraction higher in soybeans the southeastern midwest continues to get too much rain at harvest time more on the way the next several days on the charts january soybeans seeing the forty-day moving average at eight sixty four and three quarters we are trending below that on the january contract on this friday in corn december up six and a half, 367 and a quarter the 20-day moving average seen at 367 and three-quarters of a cent. Wheat Futures reclaiming some of Thursday's losses. 15 cents higher, nearby Chicago wheat, 13 better Kansas City, Minneapolis Spring Wheat, 7 and a fraction higher an hour into Friday's trade. Livestock at the Merck in Live Cattle Futures, a narrow mix. 15 cents on either side of steady as we await cash cattle activity in Texas and Kansas. Feeder cattle trending 50 to 70 cents lower January-March contracts. Lean hog futures 35 to 70 cents higher. The Dow down over 300 points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson.
1: Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount.
0: information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike
2: Adams. Well, we continue to talk about China, of course. China is both the top producer and consumer of pork, and uh, they've been dealing with African swine fever for some time now in 10 provinces. Uh, They've been culling a lot of hogs there to prevent spreading the virus. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the uh, impact of this uh, in se- from se- several different angles. We're going to talk with Will Sawyer. He's lead animal protein economist for, for CoBank's Knowledge Exchange Division. Will, thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh,
2: do we have a, a real good handle on how widespread that disease is and the, how, uh, how big of an impact it's had so far in China?
5: You know, I think like most things in China, it's uh, it's very hard to really nail down a, a good number. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, we have seen uh, probably 30 to 40 cases at this point of African swine fever and only affecting, at least publicly, 50,000 hogs, which is obviously a fraction of the, you know, 450 million in the Chinese hog herd. way we were kind of thinking about this is on a provincial level like you said ten provinces have been impacted kind of watching prices i think to get the best indicator of where the market is
2: but to be sure there is the threat there is the concern of this being more widespread and could really uh, disrupt the world's pork supply chain couldn't it
5: absolutely you know when we when you think about china you know absolutely when uh... your half of the global supply is that chinese hog sector is um, it really would be you know difficult for any single market or even the three biggest pork exporting markets, which thankfully the U.S. is one of, to really serve um, to serve you know Chinese demand in a significant African swine fever outbreak. You know, in if the Chinese you know imported one percent more um, pork uh, than what they consume that would imply a 20% increase in U.S. pork export. So we can see why the futures market is uh, as excited as they are.
2: We're talking with Will Sawyer, lead animal protein economist with CoBank's Knowledge Exchange Division. So there is an opportunity here, even with our trade problems right now with China, this eventually could open the door to more U.S. pork going into China?
5: I think so. You know, you know we have ample supplies and and our our hog futures definitely in, in August uh, gave a good indication of the supply or oversupply situation we have in in U.S. pork and and the tariff uh, right now you know 75 percent is is very difficult but I think you know over time as this African swine fever situation plays out and it may take a number of years um, you know we could see some movement on on that tariff especially as the Chinese look for, you know, increased imports. There's only so many markets they can go to, and, you know, we are one of a few uh, that they would be calling. So I, I think we are in a good position on that.
2: But historically, uh, when their pork prices have increased, which they have been since this outbreak, haven't they switched over to chicken for m- much of their animal protein?
5: That has been the, the rule of thumb for, for protein economists. Uh, you know, as hog prices rise, we see that, Chinese consumer trading down to poultry. Um, unfortunately, for the poultry sector in China, after perennial outbreaks of avian flu and human mortalities um, from avian flu, chicken consumption has actually declined on a per capita basis in the last five years. Not many sectors we can think of in food and ag in China where you've seen declining per capita consumption, but poultry is unfortunately one of those. So as a result, that Chinese consumer, as pork prices rise, what, what do they do? They you know, demand increased imports. And that's something we saw two years ago, and a, a big uh, boom for uh, U.S. pork. And we would expect to see that again, uh, even with this retaliatory tariff that the industry is continuing to uh, deal with.
2: Is China buying more from other countries like the European Union and Canada before they turn to us?
5: I think that's going to be the the most common, um, you know, uh, telephone tree, if you will, is the Chinese look for increased imports. You know, the the EU still has a dominant share of the uh, China pork trade, maybe close to two-thirds of what the Chinese imports, at least pork-wise. And then, you know, the uh, Canadian, U.S. and uh, Brazilian markets uh, take up the remainder. I think those markets, especially the Canadians and the Europeans, will be the first call. But we have to remember, you know, there are four or five markets in global port trade that really dominate this. So Japan, Korea will be big beneficiaries for the U.S. as the Europeans and the Canadians focus on China. That's a good thing for us, even if the the tariff stays where it is, Uh, because, again, there's only a few markets that are are big players in the port trade. And, again, thankfully, the U.S. is, is one of those.
2: We're talking with Will Sawyer with CoBank. All right. Well, let's look at the disease itself. Uh, do we know how close they are to getting a handle, some kind of a uh, control of it there in China?
5: You know, it's it's been, I will say, um, you know, somewhat impressive how quickly the Chinese government um, has curbed the movement of of hogs between provinces, um, the movement of hogs to market. Um, the culling of hogs and, and positive cases of African swine fever. So the government has moved quickly, you know, and, and that's the way the Chinese deal with, with a lot of these issues, because if anybody is aware of the risk of African swine fever, uh, the Chinese government is, is very uh, attuned to that risk. You know, when, when we've looked at other cases of African swine fever, uh, you know, Ukraine is one that we have you know, talked a little bit in our most recent report. That's an industry where over a five-year period you saw a massive decline in supply. Uh, just in 2017, pork production in Ukraine declined by more than 15 percent, primarily due to African swine fever. So the risk is significant, and um, and we'll just have to see as it plays out this fall and winter.
2: How big of risk is there that the disease comes to the U.S.?
5: You know, it's interesting you ask that, because I, I do hear that question almost as much as I hear uh, the question of how much of a benefit this could be to U.S. pork trade. Um, it's a it's a significant um, concern, um, especially given the way that you know, U.S. pork exports are, uh, from a disease perspective, nationally banned rather than, than regionally. And that's one of the, uh, I think, industry initiatives by U.S. pork is having a regionalization approach. Uh, the poultry industry is a great example, given the the high path high path avian flu of a few years ago, of regional bans as opposed to national. Unfortunately, pork is still on the national side. So, if we were to see a case of African swine fever in North Carolina, then the Midwest would see the same kind of ban, and that's that's something that I think the industry needs to address over uh, you know as quickly as possible.
2: Because I, I believe I've heard that there, there's no vaccine for this right now. Is there?
5: That's right, you know, 100% mortality and, and relatively short order. Um, it is, you know, it's it's on the, the very scary side of things when it comes to animal uh, diseases. And in, when you think about this global pork market, and it's, it's much more global, obviously, than what it was 20 years ago. Consultants and industry analysts and uh, producers are traveling in these major pork production regions of the world, whether that's North America or Europe or China, and, you know, that's a a very big risk when it comes to the spread of the disease.
2: All right, so um, there are a lot of angles to this, a lot of different layers to it, but from a U.S. perspective, if the disease does not come here, and that's a biggie right there, uh, it would seem that the situation in China, uh, this African swine fever outbreak could lead to them buying more U.S. pork. It just remains to be seen how much and how soon is that it.
5: I think that's really the, the way that, that we are thinking about it. Um, you know, at, at, at this stage, it is it's very evident that the Chinese are aware of the risk. <laughs> the major importers in China have been, you know, making significant uh, headroads and, and developing relationships with you know, major traders, major major producers around the world, not just here in the U.S preparing for that risk so we know that they're taking it seriously and we know that we're on that opportunity and i think it's uh it's something that we are in a very great position to be able to uh serve that demand to market in 2019 or 2020 obviously where pork supply continues to expand with new pork plants and the double shifting of of some plants that have been uh, built in the last couple years we are you
1: know
2: serve that demand so even if the trade tensions the tariffs are still in place but especially if an agreement was reached in some kind of trade deal or easing of the tariffs it would seem that would really open that uh, market if they're really looking for pork
5: that's right you know when you look at what the the Chinese import uh, food and agriculture wise um, you know soybeans and and pork are are pretty high on that list Um, I think the Chinese have made a very uh, clear and concerted effort to show that uh, they can do without um, U.S. soybeans. I think they would have a much harder time if they went into a a major increase in pork imports going without the U.S. Um, I think that would be very difficult for the Canadians and the Europeans and the Brazilians to really fill what would be a significant void globally. Uh, for pork if the Chinese really do have a major African swine fever outbreak in, you know, in the next two to three years.
2: Yeah, it it would seem that uh, Chinese consumers will continue to demand pork, and uh, they're going to have to be buying it uh, uh, from somewhere, it looks like, uh, more than they have been, and as you said, uh, eventually they'll be needing to come to the U.S. Well, thank you for your perspective on this. This is kind of a a story that's been building, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, Thanks for being with us.
5: Absolutely. Thanks for
2: having me. All right. That is Will Sawyer, lead animal protein economist with CoBank's Knowledge Exchange Division. So we'll keep a close watch on uh, that situation in China with African swine fever. All right. Coming up next... Even as Harvest uh, 18 uh, k- continues, we're already looking ahead to the 2019 growing season. Some tips, some uh, thoughts on preparation for a successful 2019 coming up next on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
5: We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago.
3: So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide. When you see how little they cost, discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand.
2: Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now.
0: I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Devorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over five million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, the hard
2: part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1 800 489 7204. 1 800 489 7204. That's 1 800
7: 489 7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed debt management service provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM80031.
0: Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover tar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
1: children's book cookbook inspirational work poetry or a biography and want to get it published then you need to call page publishing and do it immediately call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit again for your free author submission kit call 800-955-4538 that's 800-955-4538 your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call call page publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit
7: it's a bully This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Information
0: farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
2: Well, even as this year's harvest continues for many, it's not too soon to be looking ahead to next year and beyond. We continue our series of planning and preparation with Arista Life Science. Joining us today is the Technical Sales Specialist for Arista Life Science, Lynn Justison. Lynn, thanks for being with us again.
8: Oh, you bet, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, nice uh, nice morning here today in South Dakota, as I said. So
2: it's a beautiful wow. day. All right. Well, a little rainy here in Illinois, but uh, glad uh, they're getting some uh, nice yep. weather there in South Dakota. Let's talk about, last time you were on, we talked about building a foundation to get a crop off to the best start. So we're looking ahead to next year, uh, wanting to get that crop off to a good start. How do they? How do farmers go about building that foundation?
8: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I, you know, I, you know, and as, as we talked last time, Mike, I think the real thing is, is you're you're trying to figure out how to bring a balance out there, right? It's not it maybe necessarily too much or too, you know, too little for not for sure, but too much is just as bad of any one thing or any one one thing going on within a system. And I think we really need to look at and, and approach that as a, as a, as a system wise. You know, as um, we're thinking about that balance and we're thinking about. Here's the things we do again you know just a, a quick reiteration is as we go through that is you know we, we talk about establishment we start you know we talk about that base and building that base for that for that plan out there and to turn it into to thinking it you know kind of factory wise build it in and build a foundation get a solid foundation and then we we work on things in the architecture where we start building them out and we're starting to build plant structure and root structure and setting up that system to start gathering light and then once we get to gathering light is our you know, that's when we're green, and that's our, our photosynthesis days where we're taking and turning, you know, air and nutrients and turning that into sugar and preparing the plant to, to reproduce and then, you know, ultimately turn it into grain. So I, I think that the, the real trick and the balance to that is, is is identifying key parts within that. And there's, you know, at Arista, you know, what we've done is, We've taken a look at this and, again, trying to unlock some of those things within that. And we we have a, you know, I guess our way of of kind of framing that up is unlock five, and there's kind of five growth stages out there where each one of those, it may be one thing might be enough for the whole year, but if we do A plus C, it might do this. And and, and trying to figure out how do do you layer those things out, how do you do those things um, within that system that, one, are the most efficient, Two are, you know, if we can figure out ways to do them while while we're making other trips and not adding trips, even better. And three, what are the most efficient ways to optimize that yield on that acre?
2: Okay, well, kind of take us through those uh, stages in, in Unlock Five, as you call it. The, this is your uh, yep. crop life cycle strategies. Uh, so, what are yep. those stages of the crop that that ultimately determine yield? and then what can growers do through each one of those uh, stages to help get the maximum yield at the end of the year?
8: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll just start right at the beginning and, and talk about a couple of key things that I think lead directly to yield or at least set the stage to where yield can be maximized. Uh, we'll start with establishment. And establishment is this, that. That's when you plan it. What are the soil conditions? You know, what's your seeding depth? What's the soil conditions like? You know, is it too wet? Is it a little too dry? Um, you know, have we done some field work? Are there clods? Is it no-till? Are we managing residue? I mean, all those things in that establishment become very, very, very critical. And if you think about that whole season, we get one chance to plant it, right? We have multiple opportunities we can go out and fertilize if we, if we really needed to, Mike. But a planting situation, our best planting shot is that first one, right? It's that very first one. That is the best one we have. We can replant, but usually those those don't end exceptionally well. So... We're trying to figure out when we're doing that, get it in, get it established right, make sure you have enough plants, make sure they get up within 48 hours. Anything you can do to, to uh, in, in particular in corn, in, in corn production, is get all of those plants to, to come up out of the ground within 24 hours of each other. If you do that, there's some incremental growth by doing nothing different than that. You know, and it, Depending whose studies and whose, whose work you look at, it can be anywhere from 3 to 5% of your total yield is just based on plant spacing and how quickly it comes out of the ground. So that would be the key to me as you look at establishment is getting it out of the ground and getting a, a really healthy, robust plant early. The next stage we look at is the architecture, and architecture is nothing more than that. Um, you're, you're just building a plant, right? You're building the factory. You're building it out. You're thinking about things like we're, we're getting a, a, a tremendous root, uh, root system built underneath of it. We're talking about in soybeans possibly some side branching. Uh, if you're in wheat, it could be something about, you know, we're talking about we're tillering. We're building that structure and that stem and shank and, and all those things in order to build up and prepare that plant for reproduction and ultimately seed making. So I think a key there is is a healthy, robust plant that is as strong and as efficient a factory as you can make it. And, and during that, then, that, you know, the next phase and how you'd, we'd break that and split that would be photosynthesis. Now, photosynthesis and architecture kind of happen jointly, right? As that plant gets out and we start getting green and we start growing, we're using photosynthesis to help build it. Plus, we can do other things within that to do it. But we're talking about leaf area. We're talking about depth of green, the photosynthesis, um, you know, how much chlorophylls in that plant, how deep and dark and robust is that plant, and how efficient is it at, uh, at building energy. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and powering up that factory and powering up that plant, you know. It's it, no different than, than, than when we power up a plant or we power up a manufacturer. We have to have power to it. It doesn't matter how cool the plant is. If we don't have enough power to it, it really doesn't matter. And then that leads right into reproduction. Reproduction, as you know, is a really critical phase where, the you know, the, the plant is, is actually making the seeds or doing the things to pollinate it and move that plant along. Once we have that, then we get into sizing. How do we grain fill? What's the size of the soybean? You know, how deep is the kernel depth? How much test weight is in that? And, and that's really the end game once we get to there. And what can we do to ensure that whatever yield opportunity is left, we maximize that? So that's kind of the five stages in there, Mike. And as you go through those, you know, if you think about the sizing, the sizing to me is criticalness is, you know, continued green, long plant, continue to funnel nutrients, continue to funnel things in to finish the plant strong. Reproduction is a quality plant that is healthy. It can cool itself. Um, it's doing things to where it has all the nutrients and the water and the things it needs in order to pollinate and create pollen and those sort of things as it wants as well. So as you go through that, you know, there's three or four little, just little critical things in there that, that do that. But, I, you know, I, I just, you know, you, you can't hardly stress enough the, the, how you har, how you plant it and how you harvest it, those are the two times, you know, we get one pass at those, we get one opportunity. Mm-hmm. We have to do everything we can to ensure that we get that right.
2: Yeah, build that foundation. All right, thanks, Lynn, for being with us. Appreciate it. All
8: right, thanks, Mike.
2: Take care. That's Lynn Justison, technical sales specialist for Arista Life Science. With that, we wrap it up for today and for the week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Be sure to join us again on Monday right here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture.